Well, hello, welcome to this podcast hosted by UNICEF Innocenti, Office of Research in Florence, uh, here in collaboration with ODI. My name is Camila Pereira. I'm a researcher here at Innocenti, and I'm here today with Francesca Bastagi, who's the Director of Equity and Social Policy Program and a Principal Researcher Fellow at ODI, which is a global think tank in the UK. I'm also here with my colleague Shiv, Shiv Bakrania, who leads the evidence synthesis work at UNICEF Innocenti. And we're here today to discuss the findings of this very large systematic review we conducted investigating the impact of social protection programs on gender equality outcomes in low and middle income countries. I was wondering, Shiv, if you could walk us through the process behind the systematic review, why was it conducted in the first place and the ideas behind it? Yeah, thanks, Camilla. Um, so the first thing to say is that this is actually a review of reviews. So it brings together and provides an overview of findings from uh, different systematic reviews. Um, and each of these systematic reviews uh, obviously collates and synthesizes evidence from individual studies themselves. Um, and the second thing to say is that it's part of a major research program here at Innocenti uh, called the, uh, the Gender um, Responsive Age Sensitive Social Protection Program, GRASP for short, uh, which is funded by the UK government. Um, so what we wanted to do with this review of reviews is to collate and synthesize all of the available evidence on the differential impacts of social protection on girls and women and boys and men in low and middle income countries. And then what we wanted to do uh, from this evidence is to look at what is known about the impact of these programs on gender equality and also how these impacts vary according to how the interventions are actually implemented. Um, so this review reviews is pretty massive and comprehensive um, because the evidence base on social protection is huge. Um, we actually looked for reviews in 19 different academic and grey literature databases and we consulted experts for their recommendations of reviews to include. Um, we were particularly interested in studies on interventions in four different areas. So those are social assistance. So that's things like cash and near cash benefits. Um, secondly, social insurance. So those are cash benefits where eligibility is based on some sort, some form of uh, contribution. Um, thirdly, uh, labour market programmes, um, so those programmes that support employment and livelihoods. And finally, social care services, um, so quite a broad scope there. Um, so how did we go about finding evidence on these interventions? Um, we did um, some searches in different databases and we found over 6,000 studies. And we eventually narrowed this down to 70 relevant and quality systematic reviews. And these themselves represented over 3,000 individual studies from 121 countries. So I think we can safely say that we're building from a pretty exhaustive uh, evidence base here. Thank you very much, Chef. Um, so uh, now I'll walk you through some of the key findings of the systematic review. First, uh, we find that the, the review uncovered a series of contradictions uh, in terms of social protection, gender equality outcomes. We found that there is an increased impact of social protection programs uh, on women and girls in compared to men and boys. Uh, we find that women tend to share 
save and invest the benefit of social protections more in compared to men and boys. That being said, their cover still lacks behind. And there are a series of barriers that impede either their retention in certain programs and sometimes their participation. To give you an example, we find that the uptake of health uh, healthcare service vouchers is determined by a series of expectations that uh, women may have, such as expectations to return to the family to the family home after giving birth or having childcare expectations at home. We also find that family pressures may act as a barrier in their participation on, for example, labor market programs, or they might lead to early discharge from hospitals uh, in certain contexts. And we find that while no reviews really point to a negative impact of social protection on women and men, uh, we find that there might be design and implementation features that could uh, be associated with adverse or unintended outcomes. To give you an example, there there might be old age pensions that have the requirement that a person has to the old person has to leave uh, leave alone, and this might drive the person away from their family and they're put, therefore putting them in a situation of of vulnerability. Another example of this adverse or unintended outcomes could be that the the participation of of mothers in labor market programs may be associated with girls and adolescents dropping out of school or like missing school because they uptake some of these care and domestic responsibilities that that the mother cannot take another key finding is that these social protections programs that have an explicit objective uh, for example, to tackle child marriage, might might be might have a, a, a higher impact that uh, those programs that aim to look at larger outcomes such as empowerment. And this, of course, might have to do with a factor of measurement and indicators, but uh, it could also be associated with um, with, for example, the the awareness and 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 kind of like. Uh, framing of the issue and promotional outreach that these that these programs might bring uh, when they're targeting a, a specific outcome for for example as i said before child marriage and last but not least an important finding is that although there is a lot of investment on directly uh, um, investing in families and individuals uh, this effort needs to be needs to be accompanied by um, a strengthening health, education, and social protection system, and this will determine the the success of programs like this. So, to start off our conversation with Francesca, I'd like to ask, how do you frame these key findings in your experience of of the evidence on social assistance, and and kind of what what do you make of some of these findings? What caught your attention? Well, thank you, Camila. And, and first of all, congratulations to you, to Shiv uh, and to colleagues on this very important work. I, I read it with great interest and I'm sure I speak for others, not just for myself, when I say we will be using uh, this report for for a long time to come. So so really uh, heartfelt congratulations on this, on, on all the work that went behind this and on this fantastic report. Um, and, and thank you for these top-line findings that cut across uh, the, the the bulk of the the evidence that you've reviewed, reviewed and retrieved and synthesized in the report. A few things do stand out. Um, the first one is 
and possibly to build on what you you've just said is is just how powerful social protection can be in supporting women's outcomes and addressing gender inequalities if it's appropriately designed uh, and delivered. And what's striking about about this report is how you know the examples and the evidence around how effective it can be across a range of outcomes. So you you and Shiv mentioned you're, you're looking at uh, you consider economic security and empowerment, health, including mental health, um, psychosocial well-being, education, voice and agency, safety and protection. This is a this is a large range range of outcomes, and across these outcomes and and, and series of indicators, you find. Uh, you find evidence and examples of of the way in which social protection can, and I emphasize can because it doesn't always, but can, uh, if if appropriately designed and, and implemented, make really make a difference to to women's and girls girls' lives. Uh, and I think linked to that, what's quite striking also is that, and important to bear in mind, is that these are, in some cases, outcomes that aren't necessarily the primary objective of policy. So a cash transfer might really be designed to essentially provide income support, you know, basic income support to to low income and otherwise disadvantaged um, households or individuals. But what we see through this review of reviews is that these and other types of social protection can actually have additional um, additional effects and across a, a wide range of outcomes. The second uh, quite striking thing, or thing that struck me was, has to do with this, um, the question around the role of social protection design and implementation features. So this is one of the key objectives of the report. And indeed it's one of the, you know, this is where many of the questions that that a lot of us are asking, this is where they sit, because as policy researchers and um, as policy makers, ideally we would want to know more about what work, what doesn't work, what is it about variations in the design and implementation of policy that makes a difference and how do we design policy to that is gender responsive or even you know gender gender transformative. Um, and here, the report points to, again, evidence and examples of, of ways in which variations in design and implementation features matter, um, uh, including around, you know, eligibility rules, conditionality, uh, and including intended and unintended effects, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to. Uh, and that's and that's very useful, I think hugely informative. But it also points to a gap in the evidence around these uh, precisely these parameters. And I found this quite quite rem striking as a result. It partly confirms uh, the findings of other uh, reviews and and also more recent, uh, studies and 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 uh, evidence and and their study findings that that confirm a continuation in some sense in the gap of evidence on design and implementation features and this is of course a concern or anyway points to in terms of going forward a need to maintain a focus and possibly expand evidence precisely on these issues given that this is what we really want to be learning more about in order to inform uh, policy policy reform going forward. Uh, 
sticking still to the evidence, um, perhaps the second point that is is quite interesting is around the focus on social assistance as opposed to other types of social protection um, transfers or, or, or services. So this emphasis on the, of the evidence and on existing studies on social assistance, I think there are good reasons for this. We know why this happens and we can go into that. But again, this confirms uh, other studies and would support a call for uh, going forward for attention moving uh, also onto other types of interventions that can be can matter um, and make a difference to to women's and girls' outcomes. And perhaps a final point in terms of overarching findings uh, and, and message that comes out of the report is how, you know, yes, social protection can be very powerful, um, but there's lots to do still into ensuring that it is not, not just, you know, gender sensitive, but also gender transformative. Uh, and critically, that what matters is, yes, design and implementation features of, of social protection policy specifically, but also the investments in wider policies and systems. These need to be gender transformative. They need to accompany uh, social protection design uh, and implementation reform in order to ensure that social protection does indeed um, support women's outcomes and tackle gender inequality. Thank you very much, Francesca. I think I want to touch on one of the points that you just made. So, as you say, we find a lot of evidence on social assistance. It's a particularly prolific uh, area of research. But uh, it, it's interesting that we find that social assistance programs tend to improve uh, labor market participation for women. Women carry most carry most of the of the care work in the home. So, what are the implications of having social assistance programs that uh, that drive women more into the labor markets? And and what are your thoughts um, on this particular finding? Yeah, this is a very interesting and, and important result as well. And I think so when when the evidence indicates that social assistance schemes are associated with, with higher participation in paid work among women. Uh, a key related question is, well, what happens to the tasks or activities or, or other work that was, was being done uh, by women um, as they spend more time uh, or move into paid work, right? So there's a broader question around time use and what happens as there's a, this shift in, in time use. And some of the studies, you know, thankfully, and again, this is you know hugely important, do investigate, you know, they don't just stop at, at establishing that social assistance can be or is associated with an increase in participation in paid work. They, they, they delve a bit deeper into exploring, well, what happens what, in terms of wider time use and including uh, how this affects other household members and, and possibly beyond. One of the questions that some studies look into is, um, is, is, is whether or not women, in addition to taking on paid work or more paid work, uh, continue to carry out unpaid work, so domestic and other care work. And indeed, this is what some studies find. 
Uh, and this raises, of course, a concern around uh, time poverty, burnout, exhaustion, where women are combining the two, the two sets of things. Uh, and it's a related concern is that other women may be taking on uh, some of the work, or if not all of the work, that, that women are, are moving away from in order to take on paid work. And in particular, I'm thinking of older women or girls and adolescents that may be stepping in to take on some of this in paid work. And again, some of the studies, including ones that are referenced here in this report, highlight that exactly that is, is happening. Uh, and here, too, there's a concern then about you know, so what what is the social assistance actually contributing to? At a minimum, it suggests that we're not really talking about, uh, you know, gender responsive, let alone, uh, you know, transformative policy. We're seeing a combination of either, you know, reinforcing, uh, potentially reinforcing time poverty, exhaustion, burnout among among working age women on the one hand, or on the other, uh, and or the, on the other hand, um, a reallocation of these tasks to other women, older women or, or younger, younger women, including girls that, as you mentioned, might also be reducing their time spent um, at school or studying. So these are absolutely uh, crucial, critical questions, and they point to a couple of, of, of things. One of them comes back to the question of, of the role of what social protection can can achieve. So the undervaluation of care work and its unequal distribution between women and men and women, this is not new. This is an age-old issue. And I think we need to be careful about expecting our expectations about what social protection alone can do about it, right? Uh, and this brings us to the point back to the point that social protection needs to be accompanied by by adequate and good quality social care that includes child care, uh, efforts to tackle gender norms more widely. Otherwise, it risks reinforcing, well, replicating and possibly even reinforcing uh, gender divisions of labor in, the, in, this, in this specific um, case. This, this question and, and the evidence that the report, uh, the, the, the report um, presents also points to, I think, wider, really interesting questions about a long, you know, about how in social protection, historically, there's been a, a long-standing focus on questions around participation in paid work and financial incentives, right? This is one of the main preoccupations in debates around, for instance, around cash transfers and the potential that they may make people lazy, that they may make, you know, lead people to work less, at least in terms of paid work. And these sorts of concerns really reflect a very narrow conceptualization of work in terms of paid work and in terms of financial um, incentives. But when we when you bring the, the the gender lens into all of this and associated with that, of course, questions around around care and other type of work that tends to be unpaid or, or low paid. What this really brings to the forefront is a sort of a call for or a plea for more careful consideration about what what are the conditions of paid work? What what are we talking about when we talk about paid work beyond you know moving into paid work and or the numbers of our work? We want to know what pay are we talking about? What access to social protection are we talking about? So what are the conditions of paid work? And secondly, what happens to unpaid work? Uh, 
And, and what are we going to do? What does this all mean for the valuation and distribution of unpaid work that may have no or low monetary value, but is hugely valuable to society and individuals? And then, of course, and also related to all of this, questions around time use. And time use not just for women of working age, but importantly to older women that tend to be yeah, largely, you know, bypassed or, or not, no, not much attention really is paid to them, including in, in the studies that are reviewed here, and girls and adolescents. And on this point, I think there's somewhat more evidence around girls and adolescents, particularly in recent years with many new studies, including by the GRASP um, work on, on this particular group, but perhaps somewhat less attention being paid to older women. Thank you very much, Francesca. One of the findings of the review is that, of course, uh, the idea is to move towards gender transformative social protection. However, in, in some cases, um, gender transformative inter interventions or programs that aim to be gender transformative may transgress uh, some kind of um, local uh, perceptions of how uh, of the kind of uh, work that women are expected to do and so on. I was wondering how can we bridge that? How can we move towards more gender transformative interventions without causing harm? Like is this is it focusing on, on making sure that interventions are very uh, context adapted, culturally adapted or what are your thoughts uh, on this matter? I think one of the contributions the report makes is precisely that it reviews uh, and synthesizes the evidence on the unintended effects of policy. And this, I think, you know, this shouldn't be downplayed. This is an important contribution because many studies uh, will tend to focus on the intended effects of policy. And of course, that's very important because we want to know has a has a program or has a policy worked as intended or not and 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 what can we learn from that right but equally important in my mind are the unintended effects you're 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 pointing to it that you also summarized that up front at the beginning um so i think that that's that's really 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 important uh, what's important also is therefore to understand what are these unintended effects linked to and from the perspective of understanding what are the policy levers, so what can governments and their partners do to, uh, in, as, they, as they design policy or, or as they undertake policy reform, to take into account these, these potential or, you know, or observed unintended effects, it, it's, it's key to try and link or see whether there is a link between these unintended effects and, and policy design implementation factors. And, and the answer is that there is, right? So in, in many cases, there are. And this report outlines them. So in fact, even just the unintended effects you you just alluded to or, or, or listed earlier, uh, these can, for instance, be linked to targeting and conditionality uh, rules and regulations in, in social assistance. And now, to be clear, these, these issues aren't new, right? So there's a in some cases, quite a vast literature exploring the potential unintended effects of these policy design choices. So specifically around targeting and so the eligibility rules and conditionality rules that that are similarly might be 
uh, might be de facto targeting rules or rules around people's behavior and behavioral requirements. So both, and there's, you know, literature both on the theory, uh, so examining in theory how might variations in these parameters affect um, people's behavior, including in, you know, the kind of incentive and disincentive effects these create, and also there's empirical inquiry on this. So, for instance, coming back to some points we raised earlier, one of the you know, classic concerns is that means testing might create an incentive for people to, to work less, to maintain incomes and assets at such a level that will allow them to qualify for, for a program. So, it's a classic kind of um, concern of a potential unintended effect. And, some, and the examples you, you just gave follow on from this. So, the example of, uh, you know, household composition changes, um, being linked to to targeting or eligibility rules, um, or or targeting and conditionality rules, placing emphasis on, for instance, girls and girls' education potentially being associated with with um, exclusion of boys. Uh, the, the report points to the potential for for conditionality or examples of ways in which conditionalities risk reinforcing women's role as as primary care providers. These are all precisely examples of potential unintended effects, some of which are, are can be interpreted as you know potentially negative and unintended effects that work against program objectives that are linked to uh, program um, design choices. So ultimately, so while targeting and, and conditionality may be originally motivated, and designed to try and address inequalities, including gender inequalities, and to try and you know, correct them to some extent, they may end up de facto, well, either replicating or, or reinforcing them. And this is, so one of the arguments that supporters of universal and unconditional transfers make is, is precisely this one, right? That, that, that you to, in order to avoid this potential reproduction of gendered inequalities, we need to steer clear of, of targeting and conditionality. And indeed, one of the arguments made, including by the feminist advocates of a universal basic income, is that the individual and unconditional nature of a UBI, a UBI that is paid to all independently of household circumstances, independently of beha you know, people's behaviors, that it avoids the risks of of reproducing these the inequalities that are inherent in some targeting and um, conditionality practices. Now, I don't. So, I, I think independently of where we stand on targeting and, and conditionality, I think at a very minimum, what the, what this study shows is that at policy design stages, um, information on the potential adverse effects of targeting and conditionality rules needs to be taken into account as policy decisions uh, around sort of design implementation details are made. Um, and, 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 and what's key here is to recognize that there are many options, right? So it's not just about targeted versus universal or conditional and unconditional, but within these sort of extremes, there, there's a whole spectrum across which, you know, the policy design can vary. Uh, so for instance, from very narrowly targeted schemes with high information requirements, strict eligibility cutoffs, to gradually broader targeting, for instance, more categorical targeting with, with fewer information requirements, less complex to administer. Similarly, around conditionalities, these can vary from very strict 
strict sanctioning of departures um, from behavioral requirements to 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 very different conditionalities that actually support people's use of of, uh, of services um, that may be accompanied by by softer sort of messaging uh, and are accompanied by investments in social social services to 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 support the use uh, of a good quality good quality services. So, I think all of this to say that. The, the, the findings of this report, including information or evidence around unintended uh, adverse effects that can give you know, rise to concern uh, about some social protection schemes, this information can be and needs to be used to inform policy design, including around the elements of targeting and conditionality um, to ensure that policy minimize any any risks of adverse effects and amplifies any of the you know, progressive, inclusive, gender responsive and gender transformative effects of policy. Thank you so much, Francesca. Um, I was wondering if now like that we've discussed, of course, the, the findings of the study, we could turn to the gaps that were identified. So Shiv, I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the gaps, uh, research gap identified in the review. Yeah, thanks, Camilla. Um, so obviously, one of the one of the benefits of doing a systematic review, or in our case, the review reviews, is you know we're looking at this huge, massive evidence base, and and through doing that, we can fairly clearly see where the gaps are and where further research is needed. Um, so you know, fr from our review, we found that there were several thematic gaps in terms of. Um, you know, uh, where, where there is more limited evidence on the types of interventions and outcomes that we were looking at. On the interventions, we saw that there, there, you know, there's a real need for more reviews on the impact of social care programs, uh, on old age pensions, and on parental leave, um, on, on gender equality outcomes. So those are the sort of gaps in terms of the intervention areas. And then when we turn to the outcomes, we saw that there was limited evidence on uh, voice and agency outcomes and those outcomes related to mental health and psychosocial well-being. Um, so those are the sort of thematic or substantive, I would say, um, evidence gaps. But I just wanted to kind of maybe reflect a little bit on what Francesca was just talking about um, in terms of, you know, our, our review uh, went to a certain extent you know, we attempted to look at evidence on things like design and implementation. So whilst, you know, some of our objectives are related to effectiveness, so in other words, what, what works in terms of social policy interventions for gender equality, some of what we looked at was around, you know, how um, these interventions work. Um, I mean, on the whole, um, the type of evidence we included was mainly evaluative evidence. And there's a limit to how much uh, detail some of these reviews go into in terms of whether interventions sort of retain, retain some fidelity to design and you know how different design and implementation issues had an impact on their effectiveness you know and as francesca was alluding to it's really these these issues are really important you know especially when we're thinking about intended and unintended effects you know how the interventions work and how 
variations and different parameters as design and implement and implementation choices have an impact. So if I was being a little bit self-critical, I would say that, you know, even though, you know, we, we, that it's a great review and people should read it, um, you know, it, it, there is a focus on effectiveness and that's partly because of, I guess, just the scope of the evidence base that we were looking at and the fact that we just didn't have enough time to go beyond uh, the kind of type of evaluative evidence that we, you know, that we included in this review. Um, so I think it's a challenge to ourselves at UNICEF as much as anyone else uh, within the social protection research community. That I think, you know, we need to go a, bit, a little bit deeper into investigating, you know, what I call the mechanisms underlying why interventions work or not. So it's not enough to to look at, you know, what works in terms of interventions. Uh, there's a real need for a deeper analysis into how these interventions work. Um, so, you know, how these interventions work, for who they work, and in what context. Is, and I think that kind of evidence on these these sorts of details would be really um, beneficial um, to decision makers at organizations like uh, at UNICEF, you know, people out in the country or regional offices, in our case, um, who are, you know, looking to design programs um, and, and, and design them in a way that will work within their context. Um, so basically what I'm saying is um, I think yeah, we need to look look at reviews that go beyond what works um, into looking at how things work. And maybe that, that requires a, a different approach, um, a different type of analysis, a different type of evidence, which can, you know, sometimes be a bit more difficult to get at. Um, you know, looking at, and, and I'm going to be a little bit geeky here in terms of uh, in terms of uh, thinking about methods, but perhaps looking at, uh, you know, more towards realist evaluation or review approaches, uh, which in some ways are more complicated. Um, but as I said, I think I think that could be very, really, really valuable to those, um, uh, you know, who are who who are looking for evidence to inform their decision making uh, on on actually implementing these some of these policies or interventions that we've been talking about. Uh, so I think that's the main gap, and that's the that's the main challenge for I, I think for us at UNICEF and perhaps others uh, in the evidence synthesis community. Um, so I think, yeah, those are the key research gaps um, in terms of what those mean for policy implications. I think I'll hand back over to Camilla. Thank you, Shiv. Yeah, I think uh, you make a, a good point that it seems uh, to me that the, the research now needs to move away a bit from whether these interventions are effective. They, they, there seems to be very strong evidence that they, they do lead to positive uh, outcomes. So uh, the question is more like how to implement them appropriately, so to, so to avoid this like uh, kind of like more adverse repercussions of inappropriate implementation of design. So uh, we haven't we haven't really touched on kind of like the implications of these findings uh, in the com in the context of COVID nineteen and as we move towards more of a recovery phase hopefully so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this Francesca that you'd like to share with us Yes Camilla so your COVID has really shown a light on on gender inequalities, um, including in the division of labor. I think that that became immediately very apparent. And it also uh, shed a light on the persistent exclusion or under provision of social protection for women. It, it, in, in terms of the social protection policy response, which has been 
unprecedented in terms of the number of uh, of adjustments to policy and and in terms of also the, the the scale of resources that have been mobilized around social protection compared to past crises in terms of the response we've seen some very interesting examples of uh, responses that, that that have incorporated gender equity concerns uh, within them and 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 these have highlighted a number of i think of lessons and opportunities that could potentially be harnessed going going forward right so there are examples in which for instance cash transfer value adjustments uh, were made in such a way that you know there were higher higher values were awarded to to women or female headed households um, examples of ways in which social insurance and indeed social assistance mechanisms were extended to informal workers many of whom are women um, and and these are all examples that that among other things have provided a proof of concept so to say of, of how of ways in which social protection can be expanded or extended including to women that are quote unquote hard to reach or invisible or you know that for various reasons historically have not been covered by social protection um, and and so as I say I think there are you know, some potential opportunities to 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 build on on all of this however many of these in fact the majority of, of these adjustments are of course uh, short term and temporary so they may have attempted to uh, address some of the, the long-standing gaps in terms of coverage and adequacy of social protection for, for women but primarily temporarily right uh, and and as we I mean you mentioned recovery I mean as as the situation evolves and uh, and hopefully in some context we're moving towards a a recovery phase. The, the reality is that actually, in many contexts, these adjustments are being discontinued or even reversed. And the expectation is that in many countries, um, going forward, such discontinuations and potential reversals and even cuts will continue, might even deepen as the economic crisis continues to unfold as, and as countries face tightening fiscal constraints and reduced fiscal um, space. So, so there are worries there, but associated with that, you know, there, there are really important domestic or national and international initiatives aiming to support, uh, to support social protection. So at a minimum to try and maintain what, what is there and trying to, to, to ring fence or somehow defend uh, existing policies. And, and in some contexts, even to support the, the, the continuation or, or, or even extension of some of the adjustments that 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 were, that were made since since the onset of the crisis, and I think you know, this this report and its findings has a role to play here. Um, it, it, at a minimum, in, in supporting these efforts, both by sort of making the case of how effective social protection can be in supporting women's outcomes and, and addressing some forms of gender inequality and by pointing the way as to how, how this can be done. So as both domestic and international players you know, seek to, to, to maintain the focus and continue to support social protection, uh, even through and as we move into the, the recovery or you know additional new stages of the crisis, that um, 
this, this, the evidence collated here can be used um, in, in that sense. It also can be used, I think another critical message that comes out of the report that, that needs to be um, conveyed in this critical moment is, uh, is the, around the role of services and not just cash, right? So we've seen in response to COVID in many countries, a discontinuation of services or reduction of services. This is partly linked to the nature of the of the the, the pandemic and the social distancing um, uh, rules, of course. Uh, and and in many cases, these are services that matter hugely to women. And I think one of the points that the report emphasizes, and that is quite key to our thinking about, you know, where do we go next, is around the the, the central role that these services play in enabling effective gender responsive social protection and you know what do we do and then let's make sure we maintain a focus and maintain our attention on reinstating and strengthening services that matter to women Thank you, Francesca. I think we're running a bit out of time. So I was wondering if uh, before uh, finalizing, if you, Shiv and, and Francesca, could uh, walk us through some last remarks uh, about the review and, and, and your interpretation of the findings. Yeah, thanks, Camilla. Maybe I'll, I'll go first. Very brief. I mean, there's not much to add on. You know, it's been a really rich discussion and we've talked in detail about the findings and implications. I guess my concern, looking again from a sort of evidence synthesis lens and methodological lens is, you know, what how, what's next? How, what, how do we follow up this review? And I think what we will be thinking about is because this is a very, very broad review, and you know the the recommendations and implications are, are kind of reflect that broad scope. What are the specific um, areas that we can deep dive on, and 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 do some of this kind of uh, re, you know work that I was talking about in terms of looking at the mechanisms underlying these interventions? I think I think findings from those types of studies are really going to start to help answer some of the key questions that are coming out of this review. Uh, Francesca. Yeah, thanks, uh, Camilla, and thanks, Shiv. I, I think, you know, Shiv, I really echoing your point now and, and earlier on the evidence and the the nature and type of evidence available. You know, the, this, the, you know, if I think of this review, but indeed the 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 also the focus of other reviews, they tend to be on evidence that emerges from counterfactual analysis or so studies that, that attempt to estimate a, the impact of policy and, and try to determine causal links, which, you know, this is the point I think you were making, Shiv, which this, this is hugely important. So we, we want to, of course, be um, be aware and understand that evidence and, and use it in debates about policy and, and, and how we design policy. But this should not come at the expense of other type of evidence that emerges from other types of studies that might be labeled as descriptive, you know, don't, don't try to establish causal links, but that provide you know, critically uh, important information on policy implementation in practice, including on, for instance, the role of perceptions, sort of the day-to-day -day management of schemes and how these also influence um, policy outcomes, uh, for including for women and girls. So these main this is information that is not or may not be captured in impact evaluations, but that are you know at least equally is at least equally cru crucial to understanding and informing you know policy learning and, and and strengthening policy going forward. So this really essentially to echo you know Shiv's um, observations around 
where the focus needs to be at a minimum sort of maintained or expanded, you know, going forward. Uh, and then I think maybe a f perhaps a final point around from a policy perspective around managing expectations about on what social protection can achieve. I think the report makes, you know, the evidence that the report presents really showcases how effective social protection can be in supporting women's outcomes. Um, and, and, you know, what a critical policy tool governments and their partners have at their disposal and why it needs to be, you know, pursued by and utilized by governments in advancing gender and indeed wider equality. But at the same time, what, what emerges very clearly from the report is that, you know, if social protection is really to make a difference, uh, if it's going to, you know, avoid replicating inequalities, it needs to be accompanied by wider efforts to tackle these gender inequalities through investments in services that matter to women, through labor policies that tackle gender pay gaps and that tackle the, the, this undervaluation, unequal distribution of, of care work between men and women. Um, it's only through these also, or not only, but you know, only if accompanied by these wider um, efforts that social protection can really um, uh, achieve its full potential in terms of supporting women's uh, empowerment. I think um, that's a great way to, uh, to end our podcast. Thank you so much, Francesca, uh, for taking us uh, throughout this conversation. Thank you, Chef, for talking us a bit about the behind the scenes of the systematic review as well. The review will be out in June, so stay tuned. Look at on our website, which is unicef-irc.org, and our social media channels, which are Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you very much to Shiv and Francesca, and see you next time.